From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. They were moved from their resting place, centuries-old graves looted. Now there's a renewed effort to return the remains of indigenous people to their rightful homes in Colorado. When you see someone's ancestors in a metal cabinet on a metal drawer labeled, it's just hard to describe what that feels like. Why repatriation can be a difficult endeavor. He didn't keep records of what he was doing when he went and tore up all these archaeological sites. Later, she's poured her heart and soul into the oldest Black-owned restaurant in Denver. What we've established here at Welton Street Cafe is always more than food. It's about the care. It's about community. Fathima Dickerson inspired a mural, an episode of CPR's new podcast, Off the Walls. The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio comes from members across our state. I'm from Denver. Aurora. Glenwood Springs. Grand Junction. Boulder. Pilots Ranch. With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. Human remains taken from their resting place long ago, and returning them has proven to be a challenge. Western Slope producer Tom Hess begins our coverage in Gunnison at Western Colorado University. The C.T. Hearst Museum is not what you might imagine. It's a windowless room tucked away in the ground floor of a building at the east end of Western Colorado University but it's rich in artifacts that help tell a story of the region. We have about a quarter million artifacts in the collection. If you count each individual flake, it's more like a million. Arrowheads and pottery, even some of the earliest corn discovered in the state, found in a cave on the Uncompadre Plateau and dated to around 270 BCE. But the museum also houses remains, human remains, looted a century ago, stored in rolling cabinets. Sometime in the 40s, I believe it was, this guy Peterson died. He was a person who was looting artifacts down in the Durango area. He, he did a lot of this. Uh, and he wasn't an archaeologist, he's just looting. David Hyde is a senior lecturer of anthropology. He dies. His brother was an alumnus here. He's taking care of his dead brother's estate. Calls up Western, asks if they want all of these items. And so that's how that stuff came to us. The Peterson collection included human remains that Hyde says were taken during a long discredited period when research obsessed over cranium size. It's 25 individuals, but just the skulls. Uh, there were no postcranial remains. So this guy, Peterson, was a headhunter. The remains are likely around 1,000 years old, though it's difficult to know for sure. What's also a mystery is whose ancestors are these. Pottery that was included in the collection provides some clues, but not enough. We don't know where the pots came from. We know it's from the Durango area as well. We can look at the styles and figure that out, but we don't know if they were in the burials with the individuals, what we would call funerary items, or if they were in another part of the site. We just don't know. He didn't keep records of what he was doing when he went and tore up all these, these archaeological sites. By federal law, these items need to be returned. The 1990 Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act 
or NAGPRA, requires museums, universities, and other institutions to return human remains or cultural items like these. And, after it was passed, the university tried to do that. I think when we first found them, they were in the boiler room of Quigley Hall, which is high humidity, high temperature, and exactly the place these things shouldn't have been. That's Mark Steiger, Moncrief Professor of Archaeology. He joined the university around the time NAGPRO was passed and found the remains while tending to the broader museum collection. In fact, I didn't even know the Peterson collection was in there. Different materials were in cardboard boxes, wrapped in newspaper. In fact, one of the newspapers was uh, Hitler's body, still not found. Nobody had even unwrapped them. In the 90s, Steiger says he worked with the Southern Ute tribe to return the items to the Four Corners region. He nearly succeeded. I had everything packed up, and I had a car ready, and I was getting ready to load and take off that day. And I got the call saying, you know, hold on, this is not going to fly with the feds. Steiger was told the arrangement with the Southern Utes wouldn't fulfill the requirements of the new repatriation law. To this day, Hyde and Steiger aren't exactly sure why. Who knows, if I would have left early that day, it might have solved a lot of problems or it may have made a bigger mess. Steiger says it was hard not to feel like the Southern Utes were being let down. Again. I really hated to have to call up the Southern Utes and, and tell them, okay, I know we were going to do this, but now I'm not going to. And of course, that just feeds the, the pattern of, of lies and, and it, was, it wasn't on purpose, but it didn't make us look good. The effort stalled, and the remains went back into storage. But a recent push by Hyde, and new grant funding, should change that. The NAGPRA inventory of remains was updated as a part of a graduate student project. Hyde sent 68 letters to tribes asking if they would be interested in taking the remains. Four responded. The Pueblo of Zia, the Navajo, the Hopi, and the Southern Ute. The grant money will pay for Hyde to consult with the tribes, a first step in returning the remains. We will go to them and talk to them there and ask them what it is that they need from us. In addition to looking at the, the material, the collection, the pots, and all these sorts of things, the individuals, but is there something that we need to do in terms of how we're storing them now? Do you want us to do something else? Should they be put in a different place, treated a different way, you know, those kinds of things. And, and like, what do they need from us? Hyde says that consultation is something that was long left out of the archaeological process, and it's vital to finally getting these individuals home. Leslie Taylor is the Vice President for Marketing and Enrollment at Western Colorado University. She's a member of the Cherokee Nation, and she joins us from Gunnison. Hi, Leslie. Hi, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Can you tell us how you came to learn about the remains being stored on campus? Well, you know, it wasn't probably the best way. I learned through the ProPublica story that ran, I believe it was in the spring, and there was a story about institutions, both higher ed, museums, and others that still had remains. And I learned that Western had remains primarily through a um, phone call from a Denver reporter. And then I reached out to folks on campus to learn a little bit more about why we still had those. Do you remember how you felt learning about these? I guess I would say shocked, but that's kind of cliche too, because um, as a Native person, there's not too much that can shock you about the way that we've been treated the last 300 years. But I was a little bit shocked. I, I did not expect an institution um, in Colorado, particularly one that I was working at, 
to still be in possession of people's ancestors and family members. Does this strike you as a matter of dignity, the way these remains are handled and the way they should have been handled? Yeah, that's absolutely how I feel about it. You know, from the starting point when NAGPRO was enacted, even Congress recognized and declared that human remains and objects of cultural significance should always be treated with dignity and respect, and that at best they should be in the care of lineal descendants, so, you know, tribes, nations, and Native Hawaiian people. And for me, seeing any individual in a museum or lab, ours included, no matter how respectful or secure the manner of storage is, it's just not dignified. It is absolutely a matter of dignity and respect when you think about those ancestors being stored in a drawer or a cabinet or a box at a university or a museum. It feels grim asking this, but have you seen the remains? Do you have any interest in seeing them? I did. There was a time when the conversation began about Dr. Hyde's work to dispossess the remains and that he was applying for the NAGPRA grant when the senior cabinet was invited to visit the Hearst Museum, more as just a visit to the museum. But during that museum visit, the remains were shown. I didn't get to go on that. And when others told me how they felt when they saw them, I did make an appointment to go over and I met with Dr. Hyde and we had a wonderful talk. And then I said, okay, so I want, I want to know where they are. I want to know they're safe. And yeah, so I have seen it and it was breathtaking and emotional. I don't know what I was expecting, but when you see someone's ancestors in a metal cabinet on a metal drawer labeled, it's just hard to describe what that feels like. It must have made for a pretty tough day. Yeah, it did. You know, certainly David Hyde made it easier because the care and his commitment to getting this resolved made me feel slightly better about it, but it did make for a tough day. And I had to, you know, take, go for a walk, settle down. And then, you know, you always have to get back to work, but I've thought about it ever since, you know, I've, I've just wanted, I want to know that those people are, are not going to stay there much longer. Was it helpful to do that? Do you think it was instructive? I do think it was because it did help me to realize that they are in a safe place. It's very secure. I feel like it is as respectful as it probably can be while being in a museum. You know, they're not on display. People can't see them. They're not used for, you know, teaching and instruction. So it's certainly better than when you see remains other places. You know, there are small museums all over Colorado that I've been to that have one or two items in their collection that always surprise me, and they're out for public display. So it was instructive for me to know that they are being well cared for. You mentioned David Hyde, who is with the Hearst Museum, and he said that the handling of this whole saga reflects an othering of indigenous people that has kind of plagued his field. What don't we understand about the way tribes have been historically treated and discussed in history and archaeology? I think the thing that most people don't understand is that we're still here. You know, there was a study done about five years ago where I think something like 30% of Americans thought that Native people were actually 
extinct or not existing anymore, but we're still here. And I think that's one of the things that's most important. And then the whitewashing of our history, you know, the movie that came out recently, Killers of the Flower Moon, I think that's, that is an important story that needs to be told. And for me personally, having lived in Osage County and not knowing that story until 30 years later, it's just kind of mind boggling how indigenous and native history has just been pushed to the side. I was talking to the state archeologist, Holly Norton recently about the Indian boarding schools report that she worked on. And there's lines in that report um, that just real, I think put it really well. There's one, I don't have it exactly, but she talks about how if the folks who ran those schools were asked, how many potatoes did you use? How many shoes did you use? How many ledgers did you use? They could answer those things in very specific numbers, but they didn't even record the names and ages and tribes that kids came from to those schools. We were treated as less important than potatoes and shoes and pads of paper. And um, all of that is just so terribly painful. How does the sort of looting that took place with these remains undermine the right to funeral traditions? I think there's a quote that really helped this hit home for me. Um, Dr. Veronica Passfield, who's an Ojibwe member of the Bays Mills tribal community, said in an article I read recently that the right to protect the graves of your ancestors and relatives is one of the most fundamental human rights on the planet. And I think we see that every day. You know, we respect the ways that different cultures and religions treat the funerary process, the burial process, and we protect the graves of people very seriously. You know, when we hear about graves being vandalized or um, cemeteries being treated improperly, we take that very seriously. And yet these folks were looted from their final resting place. And I just feel like if we can get them back to a place where they will be loved, cared for, and respected, we'll be meeting that fundamental human right. What has surprised you about this process, about the effort to repatriate these remains, about how they came to be there in the first place? I think the biggest surprise was that a lot of people didn't know about it and that Western would have them and how how difficult it is. Because, you know, I think people just thought that, well, you can call someone and someone will come help you. When actually NAGPRA made it difficult. They don't want you to feel like, they don't want institutions to feel like you are getting rid of someone's remains. You know, you've got to either repatriate them or work on disposition of them in a way that is culturally appropriate. And again, with dignity and respect. And I just, I don't think that people realized how hard that is. I don't think I realized how hard it is, you know, and hearing all the work that had been done by um, Dr. Mark Steiger and by Dr. Hyde, I, I don't know that I had an appreciation for the difficulty. This has me thinking a little bit about ways that higher education is and isn't welcoming to indigenous students. Do you think about that in this context? Yeah, I think about it all the time. Um, I'm our advisor for our Native American Student Council here, and I've worked with Native students at every institution I've ever been at. And it's certainly not just for Native and Indigenous students, but higher education wasn't necessarily created for us. And um, there has to be changes 
and recognitions in order for us to be successful in the way that it was created. I think there's still a lot of work to do. I think at a smaller institution like Western, there are some things that are easier because we have that ability to know our students very personally. But still, you know, when you're in a classroom and something like this comes up and, and a Native student is asked to talk about it and speak for all Native students, it wasn't created for us. And higher education in the U.S. has a long way to go to be as welcoming as it ought to be. Well, and certainly I have never been at risk of going to a museum or a university and wondering if my ancestors were being stored somewhere. So certainly in that concept, it's just it's just a different world. Yeah, for sure. You know, I'm sure um, I thought about it. And then I also spoke with C. Marie Furman, who's one of our faculty members in creative writing, and she's also Indigenous. And we were just talking about we don't know who those people are. You know, the looter didn't keep good records, or if he did, he didn't share those. Um, very often, as Native and Indigenous people, it's hard to know your full background, too, because, you know, tribes traveled and moved through Colorado and moved through New Mexico. So it's not as though we were as insular, I think, as a lot of folks believe we were. Lots of tribes and nations traveled through here hunting and fishing and trading, and then would go back to their, you know, traditional homelands. So it's it's feasible for a lot of us that someone in those cabinets could be our ancestors or that somewhere else our ancestors are stored. In light of what you've learned here and what we've talked about, how should we be approaching the ways we learn about and share the stories of the original inhabitants of this area? Starting at the beginning, we really almost need to rewrite our history. You know, the Thanksgiving dinner didn't happen the way that we all grew up thinking that it did. Um, the exploration of the West didn't happen um, with Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea the way that we were taught when we were youngsters. So I think as educators, as family members, I think telling the true stories and both sides of all the stories is really important. I can remember when I worked at Colorado State, an author was coming in to talk about some of the battles in Colorado and one of the the posters projected the native folks as the aggressors. And I asked the library to reconsider that. If someone was coming on to your homeland, who was really the aggressor? You trying to defend your homeland or the person coming onto the land to take it? So I just think it's really kind of a reset of what our history is. And if we know our history, then I think we can move forward much better. Leslie Taylor, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Tom. I really appreciate it. Leslie Taylor, a member of the Cherokee Nation, who's a vice president at Western Colorado University in Gunnison. She spoke with our Western Slope producer, Tom Hess. A note, the school is a supporter of CPR News, but doesn't influence content. And Colorado Matters continues into the next half hour with a five-point soul food legend and the mural she inspired. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. 
It's CPR's biggest show of the year, and you can grab some of the final tickets. This year's Colorado Matters Holiday Extravaganza records December 7th in Denver. There'll be live music, comedy, and your traditions, both heartwarming and absurd. The day after Halloween is Christmas time for me. My parents are like, you need to tone it down. And I'm like, no, blasting my Christmas music. <laughs> Chase the humbug away. Tickets are affordable and going fast at CPR.org holiday. Supported by First Western Trust. When she was approached by an artist who wanted to paint a mural of her, Fathima Dickerson was surprised. Why me, she wondered. Dickerson is proprietor of Welton Street Cafe, the oldest Black-owned restaurant in Denver. And to the muralist, she's the embodiment of community and hope. Our story comes from Off the Walls, the street art podcast from Denverite and CPR, with co-hosts Emily Williams and Kibway Cooper. It was the spring of 2020. Coronavirus, mandatory lockdowns, and economic uncertainty was everywhere. And an artist named Jody Herrera had an idea. I had this opportunity to create a mural in Five Points in what they call as the Rhino Art District, right? Now that it's been gentrified. Jody wanted to use the mural to recognize the departure of African Americans from a neighborhood they'd once thrived in. Then, on a warm, sunny day in the spring of 2020, Jody walked into a cafe and met Fatima. She made me cry. Like just watching her interact with her, uh, with her community, with her. It was more than her, her customers. It was like her extended family. And just how everybody knew about this and that, and she really cared, gave everybody a warm hug. She just had like a a good time just kind of hanging out and just seeing me in my element. There, in the oldest Black-owned restaurant in Denver, Jody met Fatima Dickerson, the general manager of Welton Street Cafe. And Fatima knows everyone in the Five Points neighborhood. Jody knew she had found her mural subject. And Fatima was pretty excited about it. For artists, they have to be able to connect to their subject, you know? Um, and it, had she not known me, uh, or at least spent that little bit of time with me, they wouldn't have been able to produce what they produced, you know? Um, so it was... It was really fun just to know that she's in a space where she's doing beautiful art and recognizing beautiful women of color, you know? And so there was there was connection there. The connection between these two women created a spark. Jody knew that this meeting was special. She found a kindred spirit in Fatima, and it made Jody think of a question she had been struggling to answer. How do you define community? Is it a place, a specific group of people, a neighborhood, or maybe it's a person? What makes community, community? In this episode, I wanted to explore a part of Denver that, for me as a Black man, gives me a feeling of being connected. The historic Five Points neighborhood was once known as the Harlem of the West, 
with jazz legends like Billie Holiday, Louis Armstrong, and Miles Davis playing in the local black clubs. But that wasn't by accident. Starting in the 1930s, officials forced black and brown folks into the Five Points neighborhood using racist housing policies. Federal agencies drew bright red outlines around neighborhoods where mostly BIPOC folks lived. They denied everyone inside of those lines access to mortgages and financial services. So if you lived in that line, you were stuck. You couldn't leave the redlined area because you couldn't get a mortgage from the bank. And you couldn't get a mortgage from the bank because you lived inside that area. That policy was called redlining. Redlining affected African-American communities for decades. The low property values, way lower than the nearby white communities, created the perfect conditions for gentrification. Now, decades later, wealthy people, often white, snatch up cheap property in formerly redlined communities. The property values rise, and so does the rent. So the neighborhood you used to know and recognize starts to go away. This was the Black community. When you talk about Black entrepreneurship, there was the shoe shine place, the shoe repair place, Mr. Joe's, Minerva's hats. She sold hats and other, like, nice dresses. Um, There was a gift shop. There was, like, an ice cream shop. There were multiple black eateries um, down in the points. It was community. Though there were many changes to the neighborhood, gentrification couldn't erase black culture or Welton Street Cafe. So, Emily, what do you think about Jody and Fatima meeting at the cafe? What you just described to me is a very feminine energy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I like to, of course, we weren't there for that meeting, but I do, I imagining it, I, I just feel like I, I get that. Yeah. Especially if you meet, I don't know, another woman that has that kind of similar energy. Mm-hmm. The both of them are very fierce in their own way. You know, they're not the type of person who has to be the center of attention. Oh, but they could be at a moment's notice. Jody talked about wanting to create some sense of justice within marginalized communities that deserve to be to exist and to be acknowledged. And she does that in a in a fine arts way. And so she brings this humanity and she presents it in like this tapestry of colors and symbols. And I think that what Fathima does is take the foods from all these various cultures that she's a part of, as well as that, you know, the slavery and racism has brought to the forefront, you know, which we now call soul food. And she creates this tapestry of love and connection and safety with it. They're very kindred spirits. Good morning! So, let's walk across the street real quick so you can see Brother Jeff. 
You know Brother Jeff? I don't know who Brother Jeff is. Who's Brother Jeff? Brother Jeff is Brother Jeff. You know, you know, you, you know I'm new out here. You know this. When I met Fatima, I realized her whole world spanned five blocks along Welton Street. That was her hood, her people, her home, her cafe. Her entire world is Welton Street. Today, if you're walking down Welton Street, you'll see a mix of older shops, abandoned storefront businesses, homeless encampments, newly designed loft residences, new trendy coffee shops and eateries, and virtually no Black people. I remember everything when it was Black. I remember. I remember that. And so for people to... um, relocate either different parts of the city or different states, and they come back to what's familiar. It's always fascinating to me to hear from folks who have survived the change and who still maintain perspective, even though their neighborhoods look much different. What makes Welton Street Cafe special? Why does the community see this place as theirs? Well, a lot of it comes down to a person, Fatima. But it's also about food. Our food identity is more of a West Indies influence because my family's from St. Thomas. And so because a lot of Black folks have like Southern roots, this is how we marry the two. We have a mixture of traditional soul, like fried chicken, cornbread, collard greens. And then we have some of our Caribbean favorites, like jerk chicken, curry. We offer as specials, pâtés, you know. So the two are married. Um, And I think that's what's really been able to sustain our business and set us apart from other soul food eateries is because we are not just a Southern cuisine. We are Caribbean soul cuisine. For Fatima, it's not about feeding people. What we've established here at Welton Street Cafe is always more than food. It's about the care. It's about community. For me, listening to this response shows how special Fatima is and what she means to this community. It helps me understand why Jody chose to represent the community with a face, Fatima Dickerson. But when I asked Fatima what she thought when Jody approached her about being in a mural, her response was different than I would have expected. I felt like it was so random, you know, like, you never know who's watching you. It was just like, I was like, oh, okay, well, thank you. What Fatima didn't know is that Jody was especially interested in capturing not so much the cafe's life, but Fatima's life. Jody is passionate about representing women of color in her art, especially in places where people of color are rapidly disappearing. Jody was raised in Taos, New Mexico, and is recognized internationally for her women's empowerment work as an activist. So connecting with Fatima was the perfect meeting of the minds. Jody's art projects have always depicted strong women of color, and then it kicked up a notch during college. I only started painting really in college, and I started doing this series where 
Um, I tell the stories of women that have been through some hardship and tell their stories using symbolism from their background. So I'm basically visually narrating their story in their painting. Jody uses a technique called photorealism in her paintings to fully capture a person. So you can get the likeliness of them and remember them and remember who they are. And also look into their eyes and see it for yourself, right? It seems like fate brought Jody and Fatima together. One thing that, you know, we really connect on is just having pure love and being pulled by our passion to create justice and to create space for marginalized people and for our own experience, right? That we will not only do we belong, but it's beautiful and it's rich and, and you have the opportunity to see it or it could be upsetting and your demise if you don't, <laughs> you know what I mean? But I think, I think that's what kind of we hold in common is just being able to have the passion to be able to, um, to just create some sense of justice and also space for, for individuals and cultures that need to thrive and exist and be acknowledged, right? For Jody, there was something about Fatima that reminded her of her own childhood experiences, learning to believe in herself. Learning from my mom, just learning how to to stand my ground and what I believe in and to believe in myself and work hard towards that. And, um, and also know that you can, you can make a living off of your art. You know, it was really important to see that as a, as a, you know, especially as a woman of color. Jody knew she wanted an urban ethereal edge to her fine art photorealistic style for this mural. So she brought in a painter named Miles Toland. He's from New Mexico, too. As soon as Miles heard about Jody's project to paint Fatima, he knew it was right up his alley. She was easy to work with. She's just such a bright spirit. It was a hell yes. It was, it was an easy project to dive into. Miles was coming into this project from a very unique place. A lot of my work, where I feel the most imaginative is... Like right after I wake up in bed, but I'm still in that liminal space, sleeping and waking. And I feel like I can sort of consciously guide my dream side kind of kicks into gear and starts just like bringing these really wild ideas into that, like into that project space. With the team set, they began the process of creating the mural. Kibway Cooper co-hosts Off the Walls, the new podcast from CPR and Denverite, telling the stories behind the city's street art. When we come back, the mural becomes a project of self-discovery as Welton Street Cafe struggles through the pandemic. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Where does community come from? Does it emanate from a place, a group of people? Perhaps one person can be a source of community. Let's get back to Off the Walls, the new podcast from Denverite and CPR. It shares the stories behind some of the city's nearly 200 murals. 
Artist Jody Herrera found her muse in Fathima Dickerson, owner of Welton Street Cafe in historic Five Points. Here again, co-host Kibwe Cooper. Jody takes pride in creating lifelike portraits of inspiring women of color, and it's vital for her subject to feel a personal connection to the piece. And in this mural, it was no different. Fatima had a lot of input into what her face would look like on this public wall in her neighborhood. Jody was determined to get it exactly right. I took like 70 portraits to prep for the mural. I took these selfies in my apartment and I had to take it in good light no filters, no filters. And that's hard for women today. Women today are just like, okay, if my face ain't beat, if I don't have on a filter. (laughs) And I was like, yeah, I was very raw. I was very naked in the portraits, like, because it was just my face. Like people are afraid to show their face. And I was like, yeah, no, I'll do it. You know, it's no problem. And so, um, yeah, it was tough because I was like, is this angle right? So me and Jody are like texting back and forth. She's like, well, maybe just get your hand this way, your head. Like, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I don't know. Do I smile? Do I not smile? And all of those things. And the colors, she asked me, she said, what color do you want like to be in it? And I said, well, probably yellow, because I was going through, at the time, a whole different, like, spiritual awakening, because I was really on this quest of who am I? So the world was showing up differently for me, you know, and every time I went outside, I saw yellow. I saw, you know, and, like, people would call me sunshine that I didn't even know. Like, good morning, sunshine. And I'm like, good morning. You know, how you doing? As the mural process progressed, the pandemic worsened. Because it was during COVID, one of the things that um, I fought with was um, wearing a mask because of how many people loved my smile. When they came into Welton Street, people would come in and get hugs and they'd be like, your smile made my day. You know what I'm saying? So it was, it's all of the things when it comes to food. But um, yeah, that was, that was tough for me. That was super, super tough. Suddenly, businesses everywhere were in lockdown. It was a crazy time. Businesses couldn't see when things would ever return to normal. The longer the lockdowns and the restrictions lasted, the harder it became for Fatima to survive economically. For the people who patronize Welton Street Cafe, they want to come in and see the people and feel the environment. Like, takeout for us, especially during COVID, it was hard for the community because they weren't able to, you know, love on each other the way they want to or see people. In March of 2020, Fatima was forced to close Welton Street Cafe. Denver 9 News covered the closure. 
If one were searching for a history lesson on black establishments in Five Points, Welton Street Kitchen is your crash course. It's been a staple here on 27th and Welton since 1999 and in the Five Points community for far longer. But now these doors are closing for good. This is an emotional conversation. This is um, life and death happening at the same time in the black community. In the fall of 2020, Jody and Miles finished the mural. They named it Queen Fatima. I'm standing in front of the Queen Fatima mural. And from top to bottom, you see this earthy, green colored painting um, that gradually as it goes down towards the parking lot it turns into a bright yellow and at the center is a photo a painting of Vathima Dickerson's face and her eyes are closed and she looks very stoic and peaceful and she's wearing a head wrap which is actually a flower. And there's text that almost looks like Sanskrit. And it says, food for the soul, queen of five points, with Fatima's face right in the middle. Um, It's absolutely beautiful. They were able to capture so much of her strength and also so much softness in the features of her face. Her eyes are closed in the painting, um, but she just looks so peaceful. And this beautiful head wrap, I grew up seeing all these head wraps. Uh, My sisters, my mom, so many of my dear friends and aunties, um, all these black women, you know, they they wore these head wraps uh, to keep themselves cool, to get their hair off of their neck, um, and just to jazz things up. Standing in front of the Queen Fatima mural, I got this weird desire to hug the wall. I didn't, of course, but I wanted to. Seeing Fatima, a Black woman, honored in this way, really made me feel validated. Fatima isn't a celebrity or a famous musician. She's not a trope of wokeness. She's a real Black woman whose service, whose love, has created so much joy in her community. That's honestly all I've ever wanted. So in some small way, her acknowledgement is a win for me too. Fatima and the Dickerson family are still serving at various events and community lunches. They're determined to keep Welton Street alive and they have help from their dedicated team. Leah Andrews, who's the social media manager of the now-traveling Welton Street Cafe, says serving the community is how you stay relevant. And she's known Fatima for a long time. That's why we pulled up to Dazzle tonight, because we thought about it's summer, there's music, there's Black folk. Shout out to, again, Same Cloth. Uh, One of the singers went to East High School. We all went to East High School. Fatima went to East High School. We're all Denverites. And that's also what I think about, is we have to hold on to the staples here in Denver. But for Fatima, it's just not the same as the old cafe experience. 
the Welton Street Cafe experience is something that you have to be there. You cannot, like, you can't go to that 7-Eleven and that 7-Eleven. And, you know, that Chick-fil-A is, like, the same. Like, it's not the same. And so we're not aspiring to be um, everywhere. We're aspiring to, to be here. And and make sure that we are able to um, use our legacy to save this community. So, after a few years of catering, Fatima has done the unthinkable. The community has raised money, and Fatima herself has thrown everything she owns at financing Welton Street Cafe at a new location on Welton Street. That's where I met Fatima for the last time. I brought a photographer with me as we explored the new space. What are you doing? Hey, I'm here to take your picture with him. Really? Yeah, we're colleagues. So, right here, we're on 28th in Welton. This is about a block and a half north from our longtime location on 27th. And, um, yeah, this, this corner is coming along. So this space is actually over 3,000 square feet. And so this will double our capacity from the old Welton Street. This is our little waiting area. This will be some, like, windows here. This space right here, we're going to have, like, a a larger like table for people who want like community or while the new Welton Street Cafe is under construction seeing that mural keeps Fatima more determined than ever it was like my blossom season like i was opening up to become this woman you know um that i'm still riding this 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 wave i'm still not who I am yet, but it love always exists and it does not change. It does not go anywhere. So we started the show looking at the meaning of community. The word community is often thrown around, coined to refer to marginalized groups and used to denote a sense of belonging, while at the same time ignoring its crucial ingredients. Looking at the Queen Fatima mural reminds me that community equals love, respect. And in this case, community has been exemplified in a person, Queen Fatima Dickerson of Welton Street Cafe. We're writing a fairy tale. (laughs) I will say that. We're writing a fairy tale. Um, Fairy tales have love stories. This is a love story. You know, Welton Street Cafe is about love, and um, I can't wait. When I got back to the studio, I couldn't wait to share all that I had discovered about the Five Points neighborhood and the Queen Fatima mural. I really like how she says that in everything she's she's guided by love, and I feel like she comes she comes back to that again and again, and it's this real kind of 
feminine power to mm-hmm. her. You know, there's there's power in approaching everything with love and a generous spirit and welcoming people. Mm-hmm. There's so much there's so much power in that. That generous spirit where you have something but you you yeah. share it so yeah. everybody can have it. Mm. She possesses this very old energy that, which is why I call her ancestral, because to me, it's really hard to feel safe anymore, wherever I am. And people who understand how to provide safety from your own anxieties and the world and everything else, it gives you a space in which you can be your highest self because love is present. Mm-hmm. And love makes you want to reciprocate. Love makes you want to do the absolute best that you can. And the way that she approaches things, it kind of quiets the noise of expectation and creates space to only give and receive in love. You only get a few of those people in life. 100%. You only get a few of them. 100%. And when you meet them, you gotta hold on to them. You can find the mural in a parking lot off Walnut Street between 27th and 28th Streets in Denver. You can find and follow Welton Street Cafe on Facebook and Instagram. You can see photos of the mural on CPR.org. There's a link in the show notes. Kibway Cooper and Emily Williams co-host Off the Walls, the new street art podcast from CPR and Denverite. Find it everywhere you get podcasts. And that is Colorado Matters for today. We're a podcast, too, available everywhere. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News and KRCC. 